Father, that is the longing of our heart, that you would come, that you would find your church ready and faithful, like a waiting bride for the groom. Lord, would you strengthen us through the preaching of the word now is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm confident that a name that you would recognize in American history um, from the 20th century is General Dwight Ike Eisenhower, of course well-known from his leadership in World War II and uh, coming home following the war, being in the States following the war, swept into victory into presidential office. There is a story that is told about Dwight Eisenhower during his time as president that he was vacationing in Denver, Colorado. And while he was there, it came to his attention that a six-year-old boy named Paul Haley was dying of incurable cancer. President Eisenhower was told that young Paul had one great dream, and that was to someday see the president. Well, Dwight Eisenhower at that time did something that is probably greater than any speech that he made, but he said to one of his aides, hey, let's go see this boy, Paul Haley. So they got in the presidential limousine and they drove over on an August Sunday morning to the home of Paul Haley, who did not know that the president was coming that day. Flags on the fender were flying as the black limousine drove up. The doors flew open and out walked the president, who went right up the sidewalk and knocked on the door of the Haley household. Well, Paul's dad, Don, was home that Sunday morning and he had just pulled on a pair of old jeans and a crumply, dirty old shirt, hadn't shaved, and he opened the door and he said, yes, can I help you? And the president responded, is Paul here? Tell him the president would like to see him. And little Paul, to his amazement, walked around his father's legs and stood and looked up into the face of the man he had admired most, Dwight Eisenhower. The president kneeled down, shook his hand, took him out to see the presidential limousine, and before he said goodbye, he hugged little Paul Haley. They shook hands again, and the president left. That visit from the president was, of course, the, the buzz of the neighborhood, there was only one guy who wasn't so happy about it, and that was Don Haley, who had answered the door. He said, how can I ever forget standing there dressed like I was in those jeans and an old dirty shirt and an unshaven face to meet the President of the United States? See, Don's issue was he just wasn't prepared. As we turn to Matthew 24 this morning, I want you to know that that is the message that our Lord is teaching His disciples it is to be ready and prepared for the unexpected return of the Lord Jesus. Not the President of the United States, but one day the Lord is going to return. And the focus of this passage, as you're going to see, is all about expectancy but uncertainty. The Lord is coming, but yet even though there are signs given for which to watch, the world at that day before the Lord's return in the end times, many people will just simply not be aware and ready and waiting. You're going to see that our Lord is really just stringing together as he teaches his disciples on the Mount of Olives in the Olivet Discourse here. He's stringing together a sequence really of just illustrations 
illustrating the uncertainty of the hour and the need to be alert and ready and waiting. And we're going to say it in our notes um, in a few minutes, and if you want, strategically place your notes so that they're helpful as we run, run through this passage. And we're going to finish chapter 24 this morning. I need you to remember that what we're talking about here in Matthew 24 is the second coming of Christ. It's not the rapture of the church. So this is the great event at the end of the age when our Lord will come again in the sky on a great white horse, the book of Revelation says, with a sword from his mouth. He will come just in time to rescue Jerusalem, which will be surrounded at that time by the Antichrist and the armies of the world, and it is there with the sword from his mouth that he will destroy these armies. The Bible tells us that the blood will flow. It will be a horrible time, and yet it will be a time of our Lord then establishing his kingdom. We call this his millennial kingdom. The Bible uh, says quite clearly that there will be a thousand-year rule of our Lord at that time. Before that, the church will be taken up. We've just sung about the bride, the church, waiting for its groom, the Lord Jesus, to come. And we, we had a message about that a number of weeks ago where we talked about this most odd teaching in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians 15, how the church will be caught up, snatched up, and we will meet the Lord in the air. At this second coming, our Lord will come, and he will, His feet will hit the earth, and He will stay here. He will establish His millennial kingdom. And yet, the teaching of our Lord and the reminder of our Lord to His disciples is that even though there are signs, there are indicators for which to watch. And we've seen this throughout. There will be the rumblings of the birth pangs. And then there will be the abomination of desolation. We've talked all about this repeatedly. And, and there will be indicators like buzzards flying in the sky over a carcass. You'll know that, that there's something happening at the same time, the word picture that we're going to remind ourselves of that this passage begins with is up in verse 36, is the ark and Noah and, and the world at the time of the flood and how though they were warned, they were still unprepared for the day and the hour that the rain really started. So it's an interesting concept of, of warnings being given, things for which to watch, and yet a message of the uncertainty of the day and the hour to be alert, to be awake, and to be ready for those who are here, and especially those who know Christ at the end of the age. There will be believers in Christ worldwide. It is also a warning passage for those who choose not to pay attention to the messages of the gospel. Let's read our text. It's Matthew 24. We're going to begin with verse 36. And we're going to remind ourselves of where we've already been in just a few verses of the, of the story, the, the analogy that our Lord is putting together here of comparison of this time with the time of the flood and Noah's flood from Genesis 6. Verse 36, Matthew 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Remember we talked about this, that, that our Lord functioned with a limited omniscience. And, and in his earthly ministry at this time of teaching his disciples, uh, did not know the hour of his return. For as were the days of Noah, here's the word picture, for as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when, the, when Noah entered the ark. 
And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. The, uh, two women will be grinding at the, at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Let me reread verse 42. It's, it's kind of like the key, the keystone of the passage. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Quite a passage. If you have your notes nearby, I want us to see that clearly what our Lord is emphasizing as, we, as He continues to teach His disciples, and we are focusing on this section, that, that our Lord is expressing a picture of missed opportunity. It's a picture of missed opportunity. And the first thing I want you to do, letter A, is I want us to recognize the context. He sets the stage of these illustrations of the missed opportunities by sharing a reminder of this time of Noah's flood. Looking at our notes, what I wrote, in the flood analogy, those in the ark were safe. Those carried away by the flood were doomed. They were doomed. This is a picture of the judgment of God on people who ignored the warnings. Now look back at the passage, what he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the man. What were they unaware? They were unaware that that was the day. They were unaware that the hour had come. Now notice that the emphasis of the passage that in the end times, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the last days. One of the things we know about from Genesis 6 in the days of Noah is just the base, sinful debauchery of society at that time. And I think that's true. We have other passages of Scripture that imply that as well, that, that things will get worse and worse in the end times. People will be lovers of themselves, and it will be a, a time of sin. The great restrainer, 2 Thessalonians 1 says, the great restrainer of sin will be removed. That's the Holy Spirit. I also think it's an implication of the church being caught away and being removed. The, the church itself and believers in Christ embedded in society, the world around, is a restraint of sin. But the Holy Spirit, is a, one of His ministries is to hold back sin and Satan's agenda for God's time frame. That will be removed. It will be a time of ever-increasing sinfulness, I believe. But that doesn't seem to be what our Lord is emphasizing with His disciples as He teaches them. He's talking about the routines of life here. They'll be eat, they'll drink, they'll get married, they'll go on their way. 
Just the normal routines of life, as though life is going to keep going on the way it is. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Noah didn't preach effectively? He preached effectively. He preached loudly. He had a voice that was calling people to repent, to be ready, to get on the ark. I mean, we don't have it recorded for us, but I can only imagine that as the animals were lining up and it was a spectacle to the community that Noah must have been crying out to his neighbors, come get on, There's get in, come, 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 get in the boat. I mean, not only was he crying out, a preacher of righteousness, warning the people, but what's the point of the passage? They went on with their lives and they completely ignored the message. That's not hard for us to imagine, is it? We live in a world of people who have the message of Jesus Christ everywhere and they just ignore it. Some of you even know what it is to try to, to, to point your friends to Christ or to share the good news of Christ, to even to a family member. And they just don't want to hear it. It's not important to them. And then it was too late. I mean, the ark itself, was the ark itself not a huge billboard in the neighborhood that something was going to happen? There is a place of refuge and it is not at your house. It is here. And they didn't care. And I think that's the context in which we find Jesus making a comparison that in the last days, now that's not a, that letter C is my typo, um, and, and it's supposed to be letter B in the outline under Roman numeral one. So the context of Noah's flood and the ark being a place of rescue, then letter B, this comparison, in the last days, people will, like in the days of Noah, ignore the warnings and live without concern for the coming of Christ. And so at Christ's second coming, in the same way and as the analogy works with Noah, unbelievers will be carried away to judgment, but believers will remain in the kingdom of Christ. Let's read the next two verses, because this is the context that we find verses 40 and 41. And it's this interesting picture that our Lord gives. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. And two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one left. What's he talking about? Is he talking about extreme behavior here? He's talking about the routines of life. He's talking about a couple guys get up and go to work and they're working together. He's talking about a couple women doing what women do. They get their feed sack, their grain sack. I guess... Feed sack sounds a little coarse for feeding children, feeding the animals. They get their, their sack of corn, they go down to the mill, and there they sit facing each other and they grind out the meal so that they can make some cornbread to go with the beans at supper that night. And they're working, and what's the word picture? They're going on about their normal routines, and all of a sudden one's going to be gone and the other's going to be left. And what's interesting about the picture is that I think it's directly tied back to the analogy of Noah's Ark, those who stayed were safe. Those who didn't stay on the Ark or get on the Ark and remained on the earth, they were doomed to an eternal judgment and punishment. And I think that's the word picture. And he says, the, the reminder in verse 42 is, therefore, okay, so that's a word tying it to the previous verses, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The idea is, as you, they go about their routines, they need to be alert and awake, watching for the Lord's return. I want to emphasize again, this is not the rapture of the church in this passage, it's the second coming. 
Now the church is reminded regularly to be alert and aware and faithful in light of the Lord's return. But even this teaching applies to the second coming of Christ. And so we have letter C, the real letter C in our notes, is the contrast. Contrast. Verses 40 and 41 are are a contrast with the very rapture of the church in that the rapture of the church, believers will be carried away, but at the second coming of Christ, unbelievers will be carried away to judgment. And believers who there will be people who will respond to the gospel. The book of Revelation speaks of 144,000 evangelists. The word of God will go out and people will respond to the gospel. Many will be martyred for their faith. Others will hide in the mountains. Others will go underground. But there will be, I'm sure, literally thousands and thousands of believers worldwide. And then one day the Lord's going to come back and I would take it. It's not, the passage doesn't explain itself that well. But I take it what it's talking about in relationship to the analogy of Noah and the flood is that the judgment is on those who are taken away and that the believers will stay and they will enter then the earthly kingdom of our Lord Jesus, the thousand-year millennial kingdom reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most dispensational theologians take that position, that it's speaking about those who are caught away at the return of Christ are taken away to judgment. Believers who are on the earth at the time will move forward and into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And so we have a picture, though, regardless, our Lord's teaching is to, verse 42 again, stay awake. You don't know the exact time and hour. He then goes on with the next part, and he he, he challenges them that there needs to be a response to the uncertainty of the hour. If you don't know the day or the hour when he's actually coming, okay, we've got indicators. But we still don't know the exact day or the hour. Verse 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, verse 43, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, okay, that's tying it up with the previous passage, therefore, because you don't know when he's coming like a thief in the night, you must be ready, verse 44, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He says it again. So in verse 42, therefore, tying it with the unexpected removal of one person versus another person, stay awake, be alert. And then the word picture of a thief in the night, stay awake. If you would have stayed awake, you would have known. It's all tied together there. It's a simple analogy, isn't it? In response to the uncertainties, is that though Christ made clear that there will be signs of His return, the exact time is unpredictable. The word picture it couldn't be clear. It's unpredictable, like a thief in the night. That phrase is used repeatedly in the New Testament for the coming of our Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that our Lord is like a thief morally. Make sure you understand that. It's only a word picture to illustrate the uncertainty of the hour. All right, so the analogy is that of somebody's coming to break in your house, and it's going to be at 2.37 in the morning. And, and our brother David Bowles is asleep in bed, sound asleep. And we might get in there, we can sneak and, and, and we get some tools out of his garage, and we go in the kitchen, we might even open the refrigerator and grab a Mountain Dew on our way out, but he got in and he got out. Why? Because the owner, the master was asleep. He wasn't alert. 
He didn't have the alarm on. But oh, let me warn you. Do not enter Brother David's house at 2.37 tomorrow morning if he knows you're coming. It will not go well for you. Because if he knows you're coming, there will be a red dot between your eyes. And that will be the last thing you ever remember seeing in the night. Because why? Because the master of the house is prepared and ready. That's the whole word picture. If you're not alert and awake, you're going to miss the moment. But if you're awake and alert, ah, you'll get it. And so it's an idea of, of being prepared. Though there is uncertainty, the call is to wake up. Be alert. Don't be sluggish. Listen to the warnings. And so it goes back to the, the pre-Diluvian generation that was at Noah's Ark. They didn't listen. They didn't care. And so it will be in the end times. The message of God will be there. The, the signs in the sky will be there. The even dramatic signs at the end of the age in Revelation 16 and the pouring out of the wrath of God. And even there it says they will know that it's from God and they will refuse to believe it. And they'll try to just go on with their lives. And though the signs are there in a moment, in an hour that they don't even expect it, then all of a sudden, just like when the earth must have quaked at the time of Noah and there was an earthquake and there must have been uh, tremors and, and huge rumbles of thunder and lightning and all of a sudden just sheets of rain are falling in a matter of a, of a few seconds from nothing until, and it's too late. It's too late. I didn't know it was going to happen today. And our Lord has a reminder to His disciples here that in light of the uncertainty of the hour, be awake, but also live a life of productivity. A call for productivity, verses 45 through 47. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Who's a faithful servant? Blessed is that servant his master will find doing it when he comes. All of chapter 25 is, is almost this message right here. You have a master. Your master is going on a long journey. And he's going to come back at a time that you don't know. And you need to be found faithful. When he returns. It's interesting. The word picture here is a master who set over his household to give them food at their proper time. He wants you to feed his staff and feed his kids and feed his goats and feed his cats and stuff. Take care of him. Take care of the place. And then one day he comes back and he wants to find you faithful about your tasks. It appears to be a message directly to the disciples that our master is going to leave soon, and then in the meantime, you be found faithful, and they live with an expectancy of the Lord's return throughout the New Testament. We know from further teaching, particularly the Apostle Paul's writings and insights, that there is going to be this rapture of the church, but then even believers who are on the earth at the time of the tribulation are to live with a sense of expectancy and being found productive and faithful about their master's work. Verses 45 and 46 again. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. First thing we see there, letter A, under Roman numeral th three, is that faithfulness is expected. Faithfulness is expected. Secondly, what we see in verse 47 is that faithfulness is always rewarded. 
faithfulness is rewarded. I mentioned last week that Janet and I went down to a marriage conference in Beckley where I was speaking, and, and we, uh, 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 to our pleasant surprise, a pastor friend and his wife of, that we are acquainted with was there, and he had a couple from his church with him, and we really enjoyed connecting and fellowshipping, and they introduced us to this other couple. And as the pastor introduced us to this couple from his church, one of the things that he did is he praised them for their faithfulness. He, he talked about how this couple does so much at our church. They're involved in kids' ministries, and they, they're involved in cleaning the church. They just they do it all. They're just so faithful. And I've been thinking about that a little bit. I've been thinking about what faithful people mean to the church. Faithful people, just people who do the right thing and they keep on keeping on. They are faithful. They're often not in the limelight. They often don't receive certificates and patches and medals up on the platform on Sunday morning. Uh, They just do their job and they keep doing their job. Can I remind you, if that's you, that your master hasn't missed a moment? Can I encourage you that it is very biblical to be faithful and about the master's work to be found faithful at His coming, the rapture of the church, and ultimately the second coming for those who will be here. Uh, I often refer to these faithful Christians, you've heard me refer to them before as rebar Christians. I've said that repeatedly. Rebar Christians. You know rebar that's in the concrete and in the footers. You don't pay attention to it. We don't talk about it. We don't notice it. But it's there, and it's always there, and it holds everything together, and if it weren't there, everything would fall apart. Just be a rebar Christian until Jesus comes. Just be faithful. Just be faithful, and learn the joy of serving your Lord Christ, first and foremost. Not appealing to the watchful eye of people in your service, but recognizing the watchful eye of my master in my service. Be faithful. Faithfulness is expected and faithfulness is rewarded. Now there's an interesting contrast then in the text. He talks about this faithful and wise servant who is about his master's business. We take this to be those who are living for God and doing his work, representing his word, even in the final days of the world. But then he says, he just switches and he says, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, so he calls him his master, he's called a servant, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and he will put him with hypocrites, and in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a very dramatic language, isn't it? And so it's difficult to know. What's he talking about? Is he, is he talking about someone who postures as a servant of Christ, but who really isn't? Or is it simply an analogy or a word picture? Remember, as I said as we opened up, what this is is just a, it's a series or sequence, this whole text is, of one illustration of, an, of, of another after another of the uncertainty of the timing, the day and the hour is unknown, of the uncertainty of the timing, and then of the importance of being alert and ready. Is this just a picture of contrast or an analogy contrasting a righteous servant or a righteous person with a wicked person? 
Somebody who doesn't know Christ? Somebody who doesn't care about Christ? Or is it someone who's, who's posturing, but they're not for real? They really aren't born again. Because that would fit the idea in the word picture that they end up with hypocrites, because who's a greater hypocrite than somebody who's posturing as a servant of Christ, but they're really not? So clearly, though, there is a contrast, and clearly the whole point of the passage is there's an uncertainty of the hour, and you need to find, be found ready, alert, and faithful. That's what the passage is teaching, for sure. So we have this contrast. Clearly, what it's illustrating is that the unfaithful servant, or the one who represents wickedness, is going to receive a punishment of great severity. Look what he says. He begins to beat. He, he, he says, my master's not going to come back. He's delayed. He begins to beat his fellow servants. That's kind of a strong... All of a sudden, you start beating everybody up. He eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. First of all, letter A, we see that he's careless. I got part of this outline from Hendrickson's commentary. I wanted to give him credit. He's careless. I don't care. That's the whole point of Noah and the ark, isn't it? I don't care about the ark. I don't care what Noah says. I don't care if I'm going to be on. Ah, you can't. Eh, that's 2 Peter chapter 3, isn't it? Where's this coming of the Lord that you pray? Where's this coming? You can, you can hear almost the tone of voice in 2 Peter 3 as they mock, as they scorn. And this where's the master? He's gone on a long trip. Ah, the master's not coming back. He didn't come last week. He didn't come this week. He's never coming. Not only is he careless, though, about his Lord's return, but he's cruel. He has no evidence, I think, in the cruelty. At the least, you see, if he doesn't care about Christ, then he doesn't care about fellow servants who, would that be believers in Christ, fellow bond servants? Listen, if you don't care about Christ and you don't care about other Christians, you need to really worry about whether you're a Christian. Because Christians always care about Christ and Christians always care about their fellow Christian. And so if you're so hard-hearted that you're just represented by this guy like beating up and don't care about Christ, you have major issues. In fact, you are probably not part of his kingdom, which is evidenced in this passage. Not that he lost his salvation, but he never was one of his to begin with. He's careless, he's cruel, he's carousing. Look what he's doing, he's drinking and drunk eating and drinking and getting drunk and partying. Another image of the days in which Noah lived. They just lived and partied and drank and, eh, no big deal. Can't wait for the game next week. But this guy gets caught, verse 50. He gets caught. And the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour that he does not know. This is the whole point is illustrating carelessness. In, in, a, in a caustic disregard for the warning signs. Notice that when he gets caught, it leads to the fact that he is then condemned, verse 51, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the least, that represents, number one, a horrible, horrible judgment. It's horrible. The word cut in half, it's not cut, cut in pieces, the ESV translates it, is the word that we get an English word dichotomy from, cut in half, or into two pieces. 
I don't know that that's indicative of some kind of special judgment that God has for these people. So I got this really special judgment for those that are beating up other people at the end of the time. I'm going to cut them in half long ways from stem to stern. I think it's just a, uh, it's imagery for a horrible judgment. I will put him with hypocrites. Does that mean that, that he is, as we reflected in the passage, could be a hypocrite? somewhat posturing as a follower of God and of Christ, but not in the New Testament. The, the concept of the judgment of hypocrites is often used to describe the worst kind of judgment is reserved for hypocrites. Tax collectors, people like, you know, in that world, in the Eastern mindset, they recognize that that was a, a, a pretty dirty, rotten sinner. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Clearly, a horrible place. I've repeatedly told you the story of my buddy in Michigan when I was in high school, out rabbit hunting with him, one of my good old buddies who was just a pagan as can be. And we took a break and leaned against the fence, and I was sharing Christ with him. We were about 17 years old, sharing Christ with him. And he looked at me, and he waggled his head, and he said, Marceau, and then he blankety-blankety swore, I'm going to hell, and all my friends are going to hell, and we're going to party in hell. And I remember him telling him this, you are not going to party in hell. In fact, it is going to be a place of utter, utter torment. A place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Doesn't sound like a very exciting party to me. And it is horrible but the good news, as we conclude, is that the story of the Bible is that all of this is avoidable. Number two, it's avoidable. That's why we have the cross. That's why we sing about the cross. That's, that's why we acknowledge the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and a merciful God who loved us even while we were yet sinners. And Christ died for us in our place. And the great exchange that took place at the cross where sinners can come, acknowledge their sinfulness and receive the righteousness of Christ and forgiveness of sin and enter into new life with Christ and be a new creation in Christ and be secure for all of eternity. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, be cut in pieces, be judged with hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth but shall have everlasting life. That's the good news. It's an interesting passage, and our Lord didn't explain in detail everything He meant. One woman grinding, two women grinding grain, one taken, one left behind, two men in the field, one left, one taken. Which one was taken, the righteous or the, judge or the sinner? Well, we can only pick up on the nuance of the passage. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter which one is taken and which one's left behind. The whole point of the passage is be ready. The whole point of the passage is be awake and alert as though you were watching for a thief in the night. I wonder if that's how we live. The New Testament regularly reminds this church to be ready for the rapture, to live with an alertness, to have an eye waiting for our Lord Jesus to come. It always comes with an exhortation in the New Testament of waiting for the return of Christ, especially the rapture, especially the passages reminding the church that Christ is coming for the church. Those passages always have an exhortation 
of holiness and purity and get rid of sin. And the repeated teaching here, and we're going to see it in chapter 25, when the master goes on a long journey and he divvies out the talents to his servants. And then one day he comes back, is to be found faithful. Do you think about this? Are you ready for the Lord's return? The church is going first, then there's going to be a time frame, and then there's this second coming. And even though the signs and signals will be there, they still won't know the exact hour and day. I was trying to think of an illustration for that. I don't have a very good one. It, I was thinking about writing bad checks. I mean, that's not a very good illustration. But I was thinking, you get in a situation, a make-believe situation, where you've run your account dry, but you've passed out checks and you've paid some bills and you know that you've run the account dry, but the bank has kind of covered for a while, but then, but then one day it's going to stop. One day the bank's going to catch up with you and it's going to be over and you're going to be caught and you know you're in trouble and you know it's probably this week, but you don't know the day or the hour this week. Had a guy come up to me after church, he said, after second service, he said, I got a better illustration. He said, it's when a deer's going to hit you. <laughs> he watched it come, and he knew it was going to happen, and he couldn't avoid it, and, and he hit a deer. It's going to happen, but just don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Are you ready for the Lord's return? As his church, we want to be ready for the groom coming for his bride at any time, to be alert, to be faithful, to be pure. For those in the end times, in the last days, they need to be faithful and to be found faithful when their master returns. Listen, this is, this is where it's on you now. Are you a follower of Christ? Are you born again? Are you a servant of the living God? Are you walking in faithfulness? Let's stand together and bow in prayer. Let's examine our hearts as we do so. The most important thing out of this passage is to recognize that it, the judgment of God is avoidable. By putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's something you do in the privacy of your own mind and heart, at the conviction center of your life. You stand before God and the cross and Jesus and you admit your sinfulness and, and you acknowledge that you believe that Jesus is the Christ and, and that God raised Him from the dead and that He suffered in your place on the cross and your sin was put on Him and His righteousness was put on you. You're born again. You're entering into this new life. If you've not done that and you're not secure in your salvation, tell God right now that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He died for your sin. Your faith and trust is in Him. For the church at large, may we be found faithful. Do you ever think about your master returning and being ready and alert like watching for a thief in the night? That is vigilance when you're watching for a thief in the night. You are all eyes and ears, listening to every creak, listening for the gate latch, listening for footsteps quietly on the deck. Do we have that kind of alertness for the coming of our Lord? May God help us to have that and to be found faithful. Father, you know our hearts and our minds. You know what's going on inside us. Draw people to yourself, I pray. May people even right now be running to the cross 
And as they lay down their burden of sin and pick up Christ's forgiveness, may you make it clear to them. Father, as a church, help us to be holy and sanctified. Help us to be alert and ready for your return. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things, asking your blessing on the days ahead should you tarry. Amen. Amen.